Welcome to The Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to The Banker Midweek. This week, your editors are myself, Liz Lumley, and I'm joined by John Everington. Hello, John. Hello, Liz. Excellent. So we've decided to shake things up at The Banker Midweek. Um, So as we know, our weekly sit-down is usually about what is happening now. What is the industry chatting about, and who do bankers like you, what do bankers like you need to know about? Um, So all of these things materialize as either a current or a future story on thebanker.com. Please, the only news site you need today. So instead of discussing stories live on the Banker site, as we usually do, we are going to talk about this week and what's happening this week. And everyone knows what's happening this week is, say it with me, Don. Davos. Davos, yay. yay. The winteries, yes. The theme of this year's event in the snowy mountains of Switzerland is rebuilding trust. So this week, business leaders and politicians, along with key figures from academia and the not-for-profit sector, will be in attendance to focus on the four themes of security, cooperation, jobs and growth, AI, and climate and nature. And a little bit of news about us at The Banker. Our incoming editor-in-chief, Sylvia Pavoni, is donning the winter gear for Estavos this week uh, while she's covering for our sister publication, Sustainable Views. She will be joining us at The Banker next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's get back to to Davos. Now, before we start on the Davos topics, we, I want to talk a little bit sort of in general, John, um, and sort of I wanted to highlight this editorial, which was on the homepage of the Financial Times today. And the editorial board writes, "Um, yet Davos can often become an echo chamber. There is a risk that some delegates end up leaving the event with their beliefs reinforced. The forum can at times feel like a rant among the like-minded individuals who are struggling to come to terms with a changing reality. Um, The editorial goes on to mention Davos woman and Davos man uh, and to say that the main reality of Davos is really a networking uh, event, uh, of course, and a a party event, um, not necessarily a place where uh, ideas actually change the way our world works. Um, what do you think about Davos Man, Davos Man? Oh, yes, Davos Man. I think so. It was a book by Peter Goodman a few years back where he really kind of like dug into sort of into dug Davos Man and Davos Woman as well, it has to be mm. said. So just it can. And I think there is that perception that it's just this kind of this group of kind of extraordinarily important and often very rich and very powerful people just all together. So like kind of having a knees up on the mountains or like talking mm. about the things that concern them and sort of all agreeing with one another and and such. So I think it's still, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's definitely a sort of a decent forum. Things like this have to happen and the discussions mm. have to happen. And I think often it's kind of, it's not so much what's going on in the public eye that's, that's so important. It's kind of the conversations that are happening behind the scenes, as it were. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I know one can be very skeptical about it. I mean, I wasn't invited this year, so <laughs> boo. So, okay, maybe, I've maybe, never been invited. yes, maybe I should kind of like just stick my foot in for that sort of like kind of reasons. So, but I think it's, I mean, it's always, interesting to get the lines coming out of there and I mean and and there are sort of there are important discussions which happen so whether things change you just I mean it's hard to say but but yeah you can you can see both sides of the argument for that mm. for sure it's very interesting because one of the things that the editorial um pointed out was you know for a while especially sort of maybe 10 years ago at Davos it was you know 
as you mentioned, you know, very rich people, you know, successful people. I guess it costs like fifty thousand to be a, a member of of the World Economic Forum. Um, but it was a place where where people have a very global mindset, where borders didn't really matter. Um, and we were looking, you know, at these these large changing ideas to to look at at problems in society. And we are now entering a world. I guess we'll get into this when we talk about the elections and that are happening across the planet right at the moment. Um, that people have been rejecting this idea of globalization and and re-embracing their borders <laughs> and sovereignty as we as we as we talk in the in the the UK right at the moment which is uh, at the end of its uh, Brexit journey but it's it it's interesting how it's kind of like this overarching theme which you see in in banking uh and 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 different different corners around um a rejection of centralization and rejection and to a, a move towards decentralization, which they've kind of highlighted a little bit that this is the the uh, the the tone of how Davos has changed and why there's maybe a little bit of a backlash um, of, of 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 views about what it's like. Indeed, yeah, and I think I mean, interestingly, sort of. Um, our colleague um, Anita wrote um, an article a few days ago, just writing up on sort of the World Economic Forum's um, 2024 Global Risks and Perception Survey, uh, which came out just ahead of ahead of the um, the forum itself. And quite often, kind of, you'll have climate change, which will kind of be right up there at the top of the ranking for the risks um, that sort of the global economy faces. And I mean, with good reason. I mean, particularly with everything that's been going on. But it's interesting this year they mentioned. Um, misinformation and disinformation mm. really as that sort of that top risk um, uh, just facing kind of facing facing the world in the sort of the two year time frame going forward and particularly given that this is such a large election year I think the largest election year on in history um, <laughs> some some are saying with good reason I mean particularly within the US here in the UK we've already had the elections in Taiwan and so many others around the world mm. so um and I think that kind of plays into that sort of that that decentralized narrative, as it were, that sort of the decentralization of truth in terms of kind of misinformation. You can there sort of states increasingly will not have a monopoly on that truth, and then you get that fragmentary kind of aspect of it. And of course, that kind of that plugs into finance as well. Mm. I mean, it's what we've we've talked about many times with digital assets, with crypto assets, and such like that. Yep. So, Very much. and also, and um, particularly sort of and. And then this is only going to get um, even more kind of um, pronounced when we talk about AI and its impact. Yeah. So one of the articles um, that that came out uh, in early on in the the World Economic Forum Davos event is there was a, a pre-event study by PwC um, of executives and how they feel generative AI, artificial intelligence, um, will impact uh, their sectors. And about a, a quarter of global chief executives expect the development. Deployment of generative artificial intelligence to lead to headcount reductions of at least 5% this year. Um, so, and there's a, a lot of industries that they mentioned, media entertainment being the, at the top. But number two and number three for these job cut predictions are insurance and banking and capital markets. So very much in our in our sector that that we're looking that mm -hmm. we're, we're looking towards i mean some of the some 46% of those surveyed said they expect the use of gen ai 
systems, uh, Gen, AI, uh, Gen AI systems that can spew out human-like text, images, and code in seconds to boost profitability in the next 12 months. However, 47% um, said the technology would deliver little or no change. I'm wondering how people have profits when no one has jobs. But anyway, <laughs> who, knows? who knows? I mean, I think actually there was another article I read um, looking around um, uh, the internet about that AI can mimic people's handwriting. You know, you talked about misinformation and 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 deep fakes, and and I I do stand as I, I don't like being a um, fear monger on AI, um, but yeah, but sometimes some of these headlines come out and it is a bit scary. It is, <laughs> and I mean, funnily enough, I mean, just talking about just a very mundane aspect within within banking. Um, I can't remember. I was kind of calling up somebody maybe a week or two ago, and. I think I forget if it was a sort of I forget exactly who it was, but I mean I was chatting away with the person on the other end, and they said, Can, um, "Would you like to sort of Would you like to activate sort of um, voice security features on your account? So you only just need to say your voice mm. to sort of access your account." And I kind of thought, "Oh yes, why don't I do that?" But then half a second later, I thought, "Hold on a bit, I've seen some of these deep fakes, and I've heard mm. some of these deep fakes." mimicking people's voices in an uncanny way and you kind of think well am I really happy about doing that and I mean are some of these kind of basic security measures that we've taken for granted over so for, for such a long time are these now going to become obsolete and I mean are they sort of are they susceptible to these kinds of attacks so that's only that for me was that that kind of really brought it home I mean we, we write about the AI the impact of AI in the industry quite a lot within the banker and but really, it was kind of a very concrete example for mm. me, which kind of like brought home the changes that are going to happen and and the risks that are that are involved. Mm. So hopefully, we'll have more Davos men and women discussing the impact of AI <laughs> this week. <laughs> or so, maybe we can have a Davos bot discussing it. So maybe maybe that's where it, maybe that's <laughs> we, the way it's going to go. Someone needs to do an alternative an alternative event um, on the world economic issues. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's going into um, the world economy. It's it's very interesting. I mean, especially the U.S. Since I am uh, American, I tend to read a lot of stuff about the U.S. economy, and it seems like there's a disconnect between actual statistics about the state of economy and how people feel about it, which is means people feel kind of things are going to, to pot mm -hmm. um, while the, the numbers don't always add up. How's, how's the global economy going, our global economies editor, John? <laughs> okay, well, I mean, it's, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I was talking to um, the, uh, the chief economist of the World Bank, um, Endermit Gill, mm -hmm. um, just the other day about, so, I mean, they brought out a sort of their economic forecasts report looking forward to what was ha going to happen uh, this coming year. And I mean, we talked about quite a number of sort of interesting trends. I mean, the US economy did did come up in, indeed. I think particularly starting off, I mean, just the the sort of the headline story really is that, I mean, growth is slowing down. Mm -hmm. um, the outlook for this year is 2.4% GDP growth, I mean, for the world economy, compared with 2.6% last year. And I mean, really, the global economy is set for its worst half decade of growth for 30 years. Really? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, so there are, there are, there are a number of challenges ahead. I mean, and when I talked to him, I mean, uh, he sort of we we started off, and I mean, he started about speaking about the potential growth for major economies. I think this is a particular kind of theme of economists: where's the potential and such. And so he kind of talked about how that's been degraded um, in the past past little while, just on an international basis. And this is what he said: So on the first one, the uh, first part, of course, like I said, essentially, 
you find that countries, the bigger economies are all facing this problem of an adverse demography in the sense of aging and so on. The second thing, which is more in the control of policymakers, is that uh, that the environment for global trade and investment flows that has steadily deteriorated, right? And that has accelerated since 2018 or so, but it was already deteriorating even before. Um, and then the third aspect, of course, has to do with technological change and productivity growth. That's a much more complicated thing because it, it ebbs and flows. So that's on the structural side. On the shorter term side have been things that have happened over the last three years. And what we've sort of seen is a steady uh, decrease in the growth rate of the world economy, uh, you, you know, from uh, closer to three down to the high twos down and now down to the mid twos, even the low twos, you know. So we're expecting the global economy to grow at 2.4% this year. And these essentially are the shorter term factors. And there, uh, the, 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 you have to include conflict. That's a big part of it. There's also climate change in the sense that we've had, we've had some really adverse climate shocks. Uh, and then the third thing, of course, is that, uh, you, you know, long COVID in the sense that there are these policies that countries uh, adopted during the COVID crisis, which has led to a ballooning of debt. And so you have a lot of countries that are actually under a uh, growing debt overhang. Well, that was that was incredibly interesting. I mean, it was I think it was the FT. I, I read this as well, which is a story this week about um, the disconnect between housing prices and people's um, income is the greatest it's ever been since like the 1830s mm -hmm. in the UK. Yeah. yeah. It, no, I mean, that that was that was a fascinating article. Mm -hmm. Um um, which, oh gosh, I'm trying to, I mean, I'm desperately trying to remember who it was, but I mean, there was some, I know, were, I, I wish I'd, wish there, I had brought it with me, but yeah, I remember reading it. There were some, there were some very stark charts there. Um, let's, um, just in terms of how affordable houses are mm. for, um, for sort of for young buyers within, within the UK. And I mean, also within the US at yeah. the moment. And I think there was a startling statistic about people who were in their mid thirties in mm. both countries are now more likely to be living with their parents than living independently. Yeah. So, so I'm looking like also it seems to be that was kind of the start of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, I wonder if this is, you know, kind of a, a harbinger of of a new, you know, I know everyone's been saying what over the, the fifth revolution we're going through. That's right. Yes. It was John Byrne Murdoch, mm. um, one of our data data journalist heroes um, at the FT mm. who wrote that article. But it sort of it really put it out in stark terms. Yeah. Mm. So the next topic I wanted to talk about is uh, the the Red Sea um, and, and the conflict going there um, and the risk to trade. And it's kind of interesting all this news going on. Uh, in Yemen right at the moment. And my husband commented to me the other day, I guess World War Three is starting. <laughs> so as, as we sit here and talk about rich people in, in, in Switzerland talking about overarching themes, I mean, are we kind of fiddling while there are bombs going off and major trade routes? Well, this is, I mean, this is such an interesting topic and I mean, and such a vital one. I mean, I remember um, I went to the IMF meetings in Marrakesh in October and I think sort of the um, the tragic events in in Gaza and Israel have, were just starting to unfold at that point, and there was a kind of there was a background kind of slight anxiety about what impact this was going to be, and I mean whether this was going to stay localized because I mean sad very sad to say we've had so many of these flare ups between Israel and the Palestinian territories mm. and also its neighbours over the years. 
And so people were kind of thinking, well, is this just going to be yet another one of these where it kind of, it sort of, it, it burns brightly for a few days and weeks and then fizzles out and then everything gets back to normal. <laughs> but it's been very, it, but then it's been so interesting kind of tracking how that's been developing over the past months to what we have now in the Red Sea. Mm. And I mean, it was very interesting kind of hearing from Indomit Gill once again, just how the World Bank's um, thinking has has um, developed on that and the impact that they see it having. So here's what he had to say. And, you know, we had three scenarios about this, John. The first scenario was if the war was very contained and it just sort of stayed in Gaza, um, that wasn't going to affect things very much in the sense that we thought that it couldn't help, but it wasn't going to hurt too much. The second shock would have been something a bit more widespread. And uh, that would uh, that was a scenario where we thought what would happen is that the traffic through the Suez would be affected. And I would say that was the situation until uh, late last year, right? So you did have a you did have a disruption of uh, trade, uh, but that that but that that was largely a disruption that could be managed because about about twelve or fifteen percent of global trade goes through the Suez, and it wasn't as if that trade was going to come to an end. It was just going to become a bit more exp- actually it was going to become a lot more expensive, about forty percent more expensive to ship a container from Europe to China, for example, right? But what's happening now is the third scenario where things become even more widespread. And that now starts to not just affect trade, but it starts to affect global sentiment. And um, um, that part, uh, that, 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 that is something that we are really worried about because we are not talking about an economy that was doing hunky-dory really well before this. It was already doing pretty badly, right? 2, 2.4%, 2.3% is not a good growth rate to have. On, you know, And then you have this additional shock on top of it. Excellent. Excellent. Really interesting stuff. Okay, so our final topic uh, we're going to talk about in our, our Davos special banker midweek is the inadequacies of inadequacies of sovereign debt restructuring regimes. What are your thoughts on that? Well, again, this isn't this is a topic which comes up quite a lot um within particularly sort of one half of my region, sub-Saharan Africa. Mm. Um towards the end of the year, Ethiopia announced that it was going into default. And then there's been some some very high-profile economies which have kind of gone through a sort of a sovereign debt restructuring process. Ghana just announced last week um, that it had struck an agreement with creditors. And then there's been the ongoing kind of process with Zambia. And Zambia has really been a very, very instructive um, case that there's been a number of kind of false starts, as it were. There have been sort of agreements um, announced to great fanfare throughout, throughout the, I mean, at various points in last year only for them to have to come back and say a few weeks later, actually, you know what, it's not as agreed as it was Mm. beforehand. And I think this is really kind of symptomatic of a very different age that we're living in, in terms of the nature of international debt and the internet and the nature of international restructurings. And Indermit Gill once again was very kind of good about this and talked about, talked about, um, where the world was now and what changes needed to be made, but also just a slight frustration at sort of at the pace of change that was going on. Here's what he had to say. So if I look at my you know, uh, three years or two and a half years at the World Bank, there's been progress, right? In the sense that there's, an, you know, 
there's an improved understanding of what needs to be done to make this thing work. And, and there is uh, more agreement between all parties, China, the G7, as well as the countries themselves. Uh, this, the, problem, the problem I see, John, is that the progress is very slow and the problem is approaching much faster, mm. you know? And, um, and this was true even before the interest rate heights. But after the interest rate heights, I just sort of feel that the pace needed to be picked up a lot and it hasn't been, right? So then you say, okay, why is that the case? And I think some of it has to do with the fact that we are applying a machinery that is not designed for today's problems. It's not designed for today's market. Uh, it's designed for it's designed for credit markets of 20 years ago. So yeah, some very interesting comments on that subject, and you can read my article on the subject uh, next week. And you can read it where, John? You can read it on thebanker.com. Thebanker.com, excellent. So wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for the Banker Midweek Davos special. Um, please uh, go to thebanker.com and see all of our coverage of the global banking industry. So thank you, John. Thank you, Liz. Thank you for listening to The Banker Midweek, part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at The Banker, available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix. Search on The Banker Podcasts to listen to more.